to Totalus Rankium. This week, Bird Hoover Part 1. Hello and welcome to American Presidents Totalus Rankium. I am Jamie. And I'm Rob, ranking all of the presidents from Washington to Trump, and this is episode 31.1. It's The Hoover. Ah. Oh. Herbie. Herbie Hoove, oh. as they sometimes call him. Don't think he had any of names. Bertie H., maybe. Her who? Gone down in history mainly as, no, not that Hoover. <laughs> yeah. I wonder which is more famous. Well, I guess the vacuum cleaner is more famous because... Oh, I'm, I'm more thinking J. Edgar Hoover rather oh, than yeah, yeah. Vacuum Hoover. What's Vacuum Hoover's name? Hoover. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> no, his, his first name. Oh. I don't know. I didn't think to check. Uh, vacuum. Probably Vacuum. Anyway, welcome. Uh, <laughs> a strong start to this episode. I'm yeah. sure everyone will agree. It, it's, I, you know, we just need to get into it. It's, uh, there's a lot to cover, okay. so let's let's dive in. Let's go. Come on, intro, Jamie. Right, hang on. So, you know, like, those 60s TV shows, like, oh, Batman and stuff? They'd often have, like, a spinning spiral like that. The yeah. show's one being hypnotised. Yeah, starting on that. A spinning spiral? Yeah, the, the spiral's red, and the background's, like, a luminous green. You could, it's, you could not have given me a better start. Thank you. Right, so spinning spiral... In, in that way, you've got the dilly 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 dilly, yep. not who's in the background, yeah. yeah. And then coming towards the screen rapidly and then moving away rapidly and then towards the screen rapidly and then away rapidly in a really dodgy kind of effects way is a spinning globe. And the globe spins and the spiral in the background spins. And then, because of your intro, we're going for it, the words pow and <laughs> kaplam, and uh, they, they all spin into the screen. Excellent. And then, then one spins in the screen and just says, hello, Mr. Hoover. And one spins into the screen and says, oh, dear. And then there's another one that just says, boom. And then everything spins away and then it's just blackness. And then a small little cartoon figure drags the name Herbert Hoover onto the screen. Almost like the intro to a Pink Panther film. Oh, nice. I'm impressed. A quick intro, because we've got we've got lots to do. Yeah. I was literally just going to have a spinning globe, but I liked the Ooh. cartoony effect you've given it to okay, me. Okay, fair enough. Okay, uh, I'm going to sum up the whole episode in one word, actually, to begin with. Whirlwind. Well, thank you for listening. Um, hope you yep, enjoyed. There we go. Don't forget you can bounce up. No, no, you, oh. we're, we're, we're going to do more detail. Oh, okay. We're going to build All up. Right. That, that was the quick version. Now we get the longer version. So grab something, Jamie. Got it. I can only see you shoulder up. Uh, so I'm going to choose that you have grabbed the edge of your desk. Nope. Okay, we start in 1874. Herbert Clark Hoover was born to a Quaker family in Iowa. Quaker, Iowa, farm country. Yes. Well done. You summed that up nicely. Uh, he was the second of three children. He had an older brother and a younger sister. His father was called Jesse, and he was a blacksmith. And his mother was Hulda. And uh, she was a prominent woman in the local church. Ah, indeed. Because yes. Quakers are... No, I'm thinking of Amish. Never mind. If you remember <laughs> uh, near 
they were start, in fact, the start of our series. There were a lot of Quakers in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Which is why Pennsylvania won the nicest state of the year award at least 50 years running to begin with. Yeah. Because, yeah, everyone was just a bit bit nice. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that's now Quakers in Iowa as well. Nice. Yeah, they've spread. They have. You've got Jesse and Holder and their, their little children in Iowa. Uh, at the age of two, little Herbert Hoover died. Well, thanks for listening. You can download our Podbean <laughs> and iTunes. Don't forget to leave a review. Didn't, you didn't it, expect that, did you? No. You didn't see that one no. coming. I mean, it's going to no. put a slight down on his presidency, I'll be honest. Um, yeah. I mean, I did consider having this as the opening, but I thought maybe a little bit morbid. Just opening on a dead child. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh. but, yeah, yeah, so I decided against it. Uh, yeah, he contracted the, the old crew, or croup, if you're pronouncing the P. Right. Uh, yeah, not good. Uh, those around him feared uh, that he was indeed dead uh, because he looked dead. He did everything a dead child would do, but then his uncle managed to resuscitate him. I tried to find out what, how, whether it was like full-on little, like little heart pompy things mm. but uh, uh i couldn't find out but yeah apparently they all thought he was dead but his uncle managed to bring him back right from the brink right you know um you know the sixth sense this yes. episode is yeah. now this he is dead he doesn't realize all the way through <laughs> which you shouldn't have said jamie because that's the big <laughs> plot twist at the end of the next episode <laughs> but yeah he could definitely see ghosts now well, um, he is one yeah. he doesn't realize well he is one. Oh, he doesn't know though no. does he he doesn't uh, anyway, no longer dead, or at least not thinking he's dead. Uh, it was a quiet and simple life for little Bertie. Uh, as he grew, he would swim in the creeks, he would sled the slopes in winter, he would fish, and one day he even learnt how to use a bow and arrow to hunt chickens. Did he hunt a chicken, or just catch a chicken? Because hunting sounds a bit extreme yeah. for a chicken. Ah, uh, you got wild all sorts oh, yeah. in the West, though, didn't you? Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, there you mm. go. Very nice. Um, however, uh, this was when life was very exciting, because actually, for most of his childhood, life was very serious and very dull. Apparently, one day, little Bertie was told off by his father for the crime of giggling. Bad child! Also, when he was very small, Bertie was given a Bible to study. Mm. Chapter by chapter, that was what he would do for his entertainment. Uh, he would spend hours upon hours with his mother in bare rooms as she worked as a minister. In fact, I'll quote uh, Herbert Hoover here. Those who are acquainted with the Quaker faith and those who know the primitive furnishings of the Quaker meeting house will know the intense repression upon a ten-year-old boy who might not even count his toes. Very strict and very... Quakery. <laughs> and then, when he was six years old, uh, a bit of excitement for the family. Who dies? <laughs> <laughs> uh, shouldn't laugh, it was his father. Oh. <laughs> uh, of, of pneumonia. Uh, but you totally got it. Yeah, the excitement was death. Yeah. Uh, his dad died of pneumonia. A devastated holder ordered a headstone for her husband, but then the elders in the church forced her to remove it because it was too ostentatious. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, holder fell on f hard times. Uh, she could not afford to feed her children. Uh, they, they were destitute. Uh, to deal with her grief, she threw herself more into her religion. Not able to cope with the three children, she sent Bertie off to live with various family members, so he sort of did the rounds around the family for a bit. Oh. Uh, and then when he was ten, he received some more 
devastating news. Mum? Oh, yes. Yeah, Mum. Yes, Mum. Holder becomes ill very quickly and suddenly dies. The three children are orphaned. Herbert's elder brother later wrote of, and I quote, helplessness and despair and a dumb animal terror. They were just left all alone. I mean, yes, there were family members, but they weren't close family members. So, what are they going to do? Workhouse orphanage? No, because there are family members around. The three children were split up and sent to the various family members once more. Herbert was informed that he was going west, very much like the band. Uh, he was going to Oregon. So it's a go west joke. Oh, <laughs> very niche. Well done. <laughs> Yes, it is. Uh, Yes, he was going to go to Oregon to live with the uncle who had saved his life when he was two years old. That's nice. That is. This is Uncle John Minthorn. Oh, what a great name. I'm not making that name up, I promise. Minthorn. Uncle John Minthorn sounds like a character you'd make up for some kind of humorous role-playing game. Yeah, or Roald Dahl. Yes, yeah. Uh, But no, uh, Uncle John Minthorn uh, was a real person. And you, no, you're right, it's a bit Roald Dahl-like, isn't it? How would you imagine John Minthorn to be, personality-wise? Eccentric. Eccentric. And owned sheep and goats. Many sheep, yeah. which are mint sauce with sheep and they have horns. Nice. Yeah. Uh, no. Oh. No. John Minthorn was a very serious man. Oh. So... Herbert was placed on a train and spent seven days all alone travelling to an uncertain future. At the age of ten. At the age of ten, yes. Uh, Yeah, he arrives. Uh, There is Uncle John Minthorn. John's son had died about a year previously, so that's why the rest of the family hoped that he would be able to take Herbert under his wing. Herbert would be an ideal replacement. Uh, Uncle John did not think of it this way. Uh, Uncle John... More thought, my son's dead, who do you think you are? Yeah. Uh, He also fully believed that idle hands were the devil's work. Oh dear. So he puts Herbert to work. And Herbert Hoover, up until the age of 16, chopped trees, he split logs, he cleared stumps, he hauled wood. He was as serious a young man as his uncle was, by all accounts. Oh, he had to be. Yeah, I mean, they, they, apparently you could tell they were of the same family. Uh, they, they had similar attitudes to life, and neither of them liked each other much. His uncle recalled later that Herbert was resentful when being told to do anything at all. <laughs> that said, however, Herbert did do the tasks. He didn't slack. Uh, if he believes one thing, it's uh, that idle hands were the devil's work. Oh. Yeah, so so he was going to do the tasks. He also got the basics of education due to his uncle setting it up. However, Herbert soon dropped out of school because Uncle John Minthorn had decided a new career was needed. Instead of working the land, having a farm and working in timber, uh, he was going to be a real estate promoter, which is one of those changes that you would be able to get back in those days in America where people could just go, yeah, I'm going to do this for a bit. <laughs> All right. I might starve to death trying it. <laughs> That's a very real possibility, but who knows? Let's give it a go. It's the American dream. Uh, so, yeah, real estate promoter, that's the new idea. Uh, Herbert was soon getting his education through doing the books in this new company. Numbers. 
yeah, he dropped out of school and he was doing the books. He continued his education at night school, so he was still getting an education, but mainly he spent his time working. Uh, through doing the books for this new company, like I say, he, he worked on the numbers. He, he got a bit of a head for mathematics. Yeah. However, more than anything at this time, what he really, really wanted was to be free from others telling him what to do. That was his life ambition. He wanted to be free to do what he wanted to do. He wants to be a hippie. That's what he wants. Oh, no, 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 no. Herbert Hoover would have no time for hippies. He wants to be free to do what he can do, and that means lots of work. Oh, yeah. Herbert Hoover was a very serious young man. Okay. Yeah, he wanted to earn a living all on his own without, and I quote, the help of anyone anywhere. He wanted to be his own boss. Pig-headed. Well, we'll get to that. <laughs> then, one day, he met a mining engineer, just through chance, who told him about a new university that was opening up in California. Uh, it was called Stanford University. I've heard of that. Uh, And Herbert set his mind on going. This sounded exactly the sort of thing he should be doing. Going off to a university, then starting his own business, and being his own man. Nice. So he put himself forward forward for the entrance exam. However, uh, he failed. Miserably. Oh. oh. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, as you can see, he's not had much in the way of an education. Sorry, sir, you can't admit you. You need to be able to write. He can read, he can write, he can do uh, mathematics, but he's not had an education, ah. as it were. Uh, so uh, th- there's a difference between being bright, intelligent, being able to do work, and having an education. So he didn't know Latin, essentially. Exactly. Right. It's like those kind of things that were going to hold him back. Uh, his his writing wasn't brilliant. His grammar was worse. Yeah, uh, he just he just failed the entrance exam. However, he did have something in his favour. The professor who was setting the exam at the time happened to be the mathematics professor and also happened to be a Quaker. And this professor saw this young Quaker coming in with uh, a love for mathematics and a really keen attitude and saw something in him and said to young Herbert after he'd failed the entrance exam, you know what, come back to California before the term starts, Revised to reset the exam, we'll see what we can do. Ooh, nice. So there you go. That's what he does. He was admitted to the university after putting in some extra study and managing to pass the exam. He found it very hard. He was at a disadvantage. Uh, But he managed to get in. He did not fit in with the others, as you can imagine. He was younger, he was poorer, and less educated than any of his classmates. Mm. He failed to get any credit in his first term whatsoever, and he only passed because one of the science professors sort of helped him out a little bit with uh, some of his uh, work. Yeah. Yeah. However, his professors did see something in him. That seems to be a thing, doesn't it? It's obviously something that doesn't translate through the pages very well. If you look at what he's doing, it's like, well, hang on, how's he still succeeding when he's failing? Uh, There was obviously something about him. A certain keenness, a certain uh, forthright, go-get-them kind of attitude that he had that did impress people. Still... Uh, things weren't great until a chance meeting with the chair of the Department of Geology. Herbert suddenly found direction. Rocks, Jamie. Rocks. Geology? Geology. Oh. Everyone loves a bit of rock. Oh, work, yeah. A bit of igneous. Yeah. Oh. Instantly, he switched his major to geology and started to work for a man named John Branner, uh, the chair of the geology department. He went out into the Ozarks region of America and uh, charted the region. Uh, Where's that? uh, Sort of 
right, you've, you know, America's like an upside down trapezium. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of, if I'm getting this right, I think it's sort of in the middle to the right a bit. More towards uh, the, the east sort coast. Of, sort of Kansas area. Oh, okay, I'm with you. Yeah, somewhere right. around there. Lots of different mountains and uh, valleys, rivers, lakes, things like that. Uh, lots of stuff that a geologist can really get stuck into. Like the Appalachians? Uh, yeah, yeah, quite possibly. They're a bit too far Don't north, though. They? Well, they're, they're a bit more to the right. But yeah, still, a geologist's dream. There you go. He went, he went out to the Ozarks uh, studying... Um, and mapping out the region, trying to make a big 3D relief map of the area. In fact, he did really well. His relief maps were so good, they were part of Stanford's display during the next uh, World Fair in Chicago. That's good. So, yeah, uh, he really impresses. Uh, But he was really struggling to get by. Uh, He was living hand-to-mouth. He's got no money to his name at all. He pays for food through getting... Uh, odd jobs like sign painting and herding horses. So he does that during the evenings and on his days off, and he studies geology herding whenever horses. he can. Uh, yeah, sort of uh, leading horses from one place to the, the next. I'm with you. Not like I don't think he was going out with and dog. gathering up wild horses. Yeah. I think he was more getting packs of. They're not called packs, are they? It's a herd. It's a herd. Collective noun for a horse. I don't know. A trot. A trot of horses. A stampede. Don't know. It's a good, good question. Don't know. Right in, listeners. Yeah. Anyway, uh, he's doing odd jobs. Uh, he's he's scraping by. His fellow students struggled to get to know him. He didn't talk much. He rarely smiled. No. Apparently, he shuffled around the campus with his head down, his hands in his pockets, just keeping to himself. Uh, he did not join one of the Greek-lettered fraternities, which are now common in the country. He saw them as snobbish and elitist, mainly because they were snobbish and elitist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, however, despite this, he was elected class treasurer and showed that although he lacked academic skills, he more than made up for it in his organisational skills. Oh dear. Because... If you can say anything for Herbert Hoover, apart from the thing I said earlier, <laughs> it's that he was phenomenally good at organising things. But that's, that's a skill. It is a very good skill, and you're going to see how far he can take that skill. Mm. Now, at this time, uh, he was using these organisational skills uh, to organise the sporting teams. The sporting teams of the university approached him, asked him to help them run the books, which he did so, but also organised games and events that would happen. Yeah. Uh, so ultimately, although he wasn't popular per se, uh, he was respected at university. One person, however, he did make a firm friendship with, and this was in the geology department. A young lady called Lou Henry was enrolled, the only woman to be majoring in geology at the time. Uh, Herbert fell for her almost immediately. I, I bet I bet she was the focus of a lot of attention. You can I, I bet she was. I'm, Female! You get the feeling that the geology department in Stanford <laughs> at the, uh, the turn of the, the 19th century was perhaps a bit bit fussy and a bit dusty and let's face it very male so uh, yes I'm sure a lot of attention would have been paid especially by Herbert the the two got on really well Herbert was convinced that Lou was the woman for him uh, but he was frustrated because (laughs) well he'd graduated from Stanford Uh, he'd done well enough and he wanted to propose to Lou but there was a problem family matters like she's too rich and wealthy and stuff yeah, you're on the right lines, but it was more uh, his family rather than her family. 
Quakers. Kind of, not that, it's that he doesn't have a family, really. Oh, yeah. He doesn't have any money whatsoever. He's got no means behind him. He didn't feel like he could propose. What did he have to offer a woman? So he couldn't. He was poor. He was worthless. (laughs) So he didn't propose. That's even sadder. Yeah. Uh, Instead, he decided to go and make something of himself. So he went and got a job. He took what work he could. He started working, pushing a handcart in a gold mine. We are obviously in California. Gold mines are still a thing. Uh, Ten hours a night, seven days a week, he pushed this cart around a gold mine. Grueling, back-breaking, depressing, dangerous work. That would be awful. Oh, yes. Uh, But as the economy was struggling at the time, he soon lost that job. Uh, He worked in another pit for a while, but again, he was soon out of work due to the economy. Uh, It was a hard time for Herbert. In fact, I quote him, I then learnt what bottom levels of real human despair are paved with. But then he caught a break. A huge, huge break, although it would not have been obvious at the time. He got a job as a copyist for a prominent mining engineer who was an agent for the Rothschilds. In this job, he soon proved that his knowledge and his organisation skills made him more than just copyist material, and he rose in the estimation of his employer. So much so that when a London-based firm asked for an experienced engineer of at least 35 years old to go to Australia to scout for mine sites, his employer put Herbert's name forward for the job. Australia? Yeah, it's a slight problem with that, not the Australia part. No money? At least 35 years old. Oh. Yeah, Herbert's 22 at this point. Oh, and the other thing was, it was an experienced engineer. Uh, Herbert has no experience. Well, he's pushed a cart around. He's worked in a mine, and he's also done the study at university. He knows Mm. the theory, he's done some practical, but he's not got experience of actually being a full-on engineer. He's got some grassroots work, and he's got some theory work. Uh, The potential's there. In fact, he probably could do the job, but it's not what the London-based firm was asking for. Still, why not give it a go, him and his employer thought. So, Herbert... Mm bought a top hat and a coat and he grew a moustache in an attempt to look older and he set off for England. Nice. First of many times where we're going to see the map whilst the map is sort of half faded we see a montage of him travelling and we see a dotted line and a ship going through the world. Yeah. Yeah. So that's happening and some nice music's playing. It's Oh, it's all the cartoony stuff from the intro. That's what's going on. (laughs) Yes, that music. There we go. He lands in England. Hey. He steps off. Everyone's suddenly got an English accent. Well, I'll tell you who. (laughs) Said the cockney gentleman who greeted him. See, maybe what you need to do now is change your accent to British. So to to show when he's in Britain to America. Yeah, definitely. Once he was there... That's terrible. Oh, sorry. Once he was there, he had an interview uh, with the London mining company of Berwick and Morning. It was Mooring himself who talked to young Hoover, who claimed to be 36 mm-hmm. during the interview. Now, whether Mooring believed Hoover or not, uh, I couldn't find out. And it doesn't really matter, uh, because Hoover was seen as the right man for the job. Yeah. I'm guessing he did not look 36, because no. it's very hard to look 36 when you're 22. Uh, but then he had been working down the mines for a bit, so... <laughs> that is very true. It's hard that, life that'll age you quickly, won't yeah. it? So anyway, of course you can have the job, they said. Go to Australia, find some mines for us. We'll see you Bye. in six months. Also, So, off to France, went to Hoover. 
again, uh, montage time. Uh, over the Alps, down Italy, over the Mediterranean, through the Suez Canal, uh, into the Indian Ocean, and onto Australia, where he lands. That makes it sound so quick, but we just know it's like three months of travel. <laughs> uh, it, yeah, this was taking a long time. It was a long journey. Uh, and the furthest away from America anyone's gone so far in our service. Ever in history. Yeah, we're in Australia for the first time. So our Australian listeners, you know, you, I can see you in the background now yeah. as he's landing. You can all wave. G'day. Uh, <laughs> so that's, uh, that's good. That's good. Yeah, uh, Hoover, uh, he, he didn't like it, I'm sorry to say, Australian listeners. Aww. Not one bit. In fact, I quote, a country of red dust, black flies and white heat. That's pretty accurate. <laughs> Where you go. In my head, that's probably about right. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> now, he had a decent wage and a house to live in, uh, but he was rarely in this house. Uh, instead, he was off touring through the Australian desert using Afghan camels to get in places. Oh. Uh, yeah, he just ra- ranges the vast country, searching for any opportunities for his employer. He spent a year and a half traversing the desert searching for gold. So if he's searching uh, for opals, he'd have been fine. He probably found loads of opals. Like, no, it's not gold. It's kicking them out of the way he was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One the size of, a, like, a house brick. So, no. Yeah. No, looking for gold. Well, his biggest success story was when he inspected a mine that had already been set up by a Welsh mining company. Uh, he gave it the once-over, and then he wrote back to London, advising his employers that they buy this mine immediately. Seriously, buy it straight away. Whatever they offer, just get it. This is worth far, far more than the current owners realise. Because they thought there was like uh, that they had lamps and candles down there, but it turned out to be the glow from the gold. Yeah, exactly. They in. So. Yeah, they found oh. it because there was just a hum whenever they walked past it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the sounds of angels. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Berwick and Mooring purchased the mine for approximately a million dollars. They quite quickly had made a profit of $64 million. So how would you feel if you, you, you're the Welsh people that sold it? Because you're kind of like, I've got a million dollars and that's great, but... Uh. I could have had $64 million. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. You could have made a man out of that. Six six million dollars. Is it six million? Yeah, seventy six million. Oh, Oh, you can make even more then. Yeah, (laughs) you can make ten and a bit. (laughs) So sorry for the bit though. (laughs) Kill me! (laughs) We have the technology. Uh, Anyway, because uh, this mine and others were doing very well, they then gave Hoover a new job. Right, you're no longer in charge of scouting out for new mines. You're now in charge of those new mines that you have created in Australia for us. You're now the overseer. So Hoover set out to run the mines with an iron fist and his usual ability to organise those around him incredibly well. As you can probably guess, working conditions in the mines in the deserts of Australia... Oh, yeah. Around the turn of the century. Not great. Not not great. We're just going to no. leave it at not great. Okay. Um, yeah, strikes better. were very common. Uh, Hoover routinely fired anyone who expressed any sympathy with the strikers whatsoever. Wow. He reduced pay and stopped double pay on Sundays. He would employ those that were the most desperate, thinking they would be easier to exploit. Namely, at the time, Italian migrants. In this case, in fact, he wrote back to London, and I quote, I will secure enough Italians to hold down the property in case of a general strike, and with your permission, I will reduce wages. 
He's horrible. Oh, he, he is full on just robber baroning his way yeah. through his 20s here. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Hoover saw himself as, and I'll quote here, correcting the perversities and incompetence of men. Uh, right. They, they just need a firm hand to these workers and they'll soon get into line. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Those who worked for him generally came to utterly loathe him. Uh, however... He was loved by his bosses, as you can imagine. Oh, yeah. Uh, Hoover had proved that he could squeeze more work per man per day than pretty much anyone. And he was still practically a kid, so uh, things looked good. He was made a junior partner of the company. He was doing so well and given a new job. How about, Hoover, you go to China and set up some mines over there? We're doing well enough in Australia now. Off to China you go. Of course, huge pay rise in it for for Hoover. Nice. Uh, So... Do you fancy it? Uh, Hoover decided that yes, he did. (laughs) But now he was really secure in this job. He was junior partner. He got a pay rise. That meant he could do one thing that he really wanted to do. Lou. Oh, yes. He sent a telegram back to Lou in the United States. Will you marry me? She replied that she would. Aww. Yes. Hoover headed back to London to talk details on China and then across the Atlantic once more back to the United States. Again, map, dotted line, lots of moving around. Uh, and there he married Lou. Nice small ceremony in uh, her family home. Uh, job done. They're married. Two weeks later, they're on a boat crossing the Pacific, heading for China. Oh, yes. Uh, which way was that globe spinning? <laughs> because he is he's making his way around it quite a bit. He's rough at the miles, isn't he? Oh, he certainly is. Hoover soon made up his mind on the mines that the company owned in China. Uh, I quote him here. Asiatic and Negroes are of a lower mental order. One white man equals two or three of the coloured races, even in the simplest forms of mine work, such as shoveling. Oh, God, not again. Yeah, again. He's a horrible person. Imagine the most imperialist British officer. Yes. Right. Yeah. Just give him a Californian accent, and that that's what it is. He, he struts into China and expects everyone to follow his lead. He was interested in Chinese history, but he refused to adapt to any of the Chinese customs. Of course. He did not even attempt to learn the language. Uh, he, he expected age-old customs, century-old customs, to just just suddenly change because yeah. he thought that mines could run in a more efficient way if they just changed. Uh, as you can imagine, he was not liked. No, no. By, by pretty much anyone in China. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and the feeling was, was mutual. Uh, he described the workers at one of the mines as, and I quote, 9,000 thieves. Oh. He recommended, after another inspection... And I quote, a thorough sweeping of the useless employees. Oh, and by the way, the date currently is 1900. Okay. Now, I will forgive you if that does not ring a bell. But if you're listening and you have a passing interest in Chinese history, that date will stand out. Because that's right, we're slap bang in the middle of the Boxer Rebellion. The what? Uh, the Boxer Rebellion. Now, there's barely time to cover Hoover's life as it is with... with we just don't have time to get into the Boxer Rebellion. There will be other podcasts out there. It's all very fascinating stuff. I'm going to put it far too simply here, just so we have a vague idea. Got 30 seconds, uh, go. 
while China, after years of Europe, Japan and America pushing into China economically, financially and religiously, decided to start fighting back, or at least parts of China did. Mm -hmm. So acts of violence erupted within the country as Chinese Christians and foreign envoys were targeted and killed. And there you go. That's that's the way I'm going to sum it sum it up. Obviously, far more moving parts than that. Yeah. But we're we're talking mainly in the north of China, uh, regions of China rebelling against the economic invasion and literal invasion of other <laughs> yeah. countries. Yeah. Now, this rebellion all happened not long after Hoover and Liu arrived in the country. Uh, they were forced to erect barricades around their compound. And they both went around fully armed wherever they went for a while. Uh, And then things get a little bit murky. It's not very clear what happens. Uh, The Chinese government, fearing that they were about to collapse, got into talks with foreign mining operations. Because foreign armies from various countries, from Europe, America and Japan, were putting the rebellion down with force. And as that happened, they were seizing things as they went, such as mines. Uh Now, the Chinese government welcomed the rebellion being put down. However, they didn't want to lose all the mines because they had a feeling they weren't going to get them back once the rebellion had been put down. So they talked to Hoover. Hoover had a suggestion. Why don't the Chinese government sell the mines to a British company... (laughs) I don't know, maybe I could think of one. (laughs) Uh, And that way they couldn't be seized because... The other countries won't seize a British mine. They're, they'd happily seize oh. the Chinese mines, but they won't seize a British one. You don't want to upset the British. No. Uh, oh, and don't worry, you're not giving your mines away to the British. Uh, there'd be a Chinese board that would actually control the company, um, but then they'd be safe. British in all but name, honest. Yeah. Just just sign, sign there, an initial here, and here, and here, and here. Yeah. And just trust me, it'll be fine. So yeah, this happened. Uh, Berwick and Mooring, oh by the way, that happened to be the company that uh, Hoover oh, managed to... Yeah, right. yeah. Uh, they acquired a lot of new mines. And then, all of a sudden, for some reason, moved their headquarters in China uh, far away from where it was before uh, to stop a Chinese board from being assembled to control the mines. Basically, they grabbed the mines and ran. Yeah, some shady business uh but again the company were utterly thrilled and hoover pocketed over four hundred thousand dollars for his part wow yeah in 1901 he and lou then headed back to london they'd done their part in china uh, and he's doing so well now that he actually becomes one of the four partners in the company One newspaper noted that he was probably the highest salaried man of his age in the entire world. He is 27 at this point. Oh my goodness. So yeah, as he was strutting around China just ordering people to do things, he was in his mid-twenties. Wow. Yeah. You need a certain... Mentality. Mentality to do that. Emotional (laughs) scarring. Maybe. It makes you sick though, because he's got... I've done nothing with my life. Yeah, well, we'll stick with it. We'll see if you're jealous at the end. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Hoover and Lou uh, then bought a house in a fancy part in London. Uh, their villa in Kensington was very large and contained maids, a butler, a cook, a governess, because Lou was soon pregnant. The first of their two children was born. Yeah. And for the next seven years, 
Hoover continues to utterly rake in the money and travel the world, visiting mines all over the place, uh, including going back to Australia for six months at one point. Mm. Uh, he was in the jungles of Burma for another period of time. Wow. He spent a couple of months in South Africa uh, on his own uh, this time because uh, he had a bit of a mental breakdown oh. <laughs> through the stress of work, and his doctor advised that he go to South Africa on his own just to uh, try and sort things out mentally for a bit, which he did. However... Despite how incredibly successful Hoover's being, the company is starting to have some problems. A a couple of pesky commissions had been set up by the British government to look into the legalities of the labour practices of some of the mines and some irregularities in the accounts of some of the other mines. All... All above board, I assure you. But it's a simple, simple error. I'm sure we could sort it out after lunch, what, what. Uh, Yeah, Hoover decided, however, that maybe things were closing in. It was time to get out the business, strike (laughs) it out on his own. Unfortunately, however, he was finding that the more successful he was in life, the more stressful he found it. Well, yeah. Long ago, if you remember, what was his one wish when he was a a teenager? I can't remember, I've forgotten. (laughs) It was to be able to work for himself without being told what to do. That was it. He's achieved that now, but instead of feeling happy... He felt like he had to prove himself further. In fact, he became obsessed with the idea that he must be a millionaire. He had several hundred thousand dollars to his name. He was most of the way there, but he wasn't quite there yet. And I'll (laughs) quote him, If a man has not made a million by the time he's 40, he's not worth much. What a son of a... (laughs) Yeah. And don't forget, a million back then is a lot different to a million now. One of those quirks of language that being a millionaire has stuck around... And because it is a lot of money, mm. it still means the same thing in the public consciousness. Yeah. But in reality, it's very different. A millionaire back then is just tens or hundreds of yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, because he's he's struggling, he has another bit of a mental breakdown at this time, uh, partially caused by insomnia. He can't sleep. Uh, he he is obsessed with proving himself, and he fears that he won't be able to do it. But. Hopefully, with his own business, where he's his own boss, not just a partner, um, hopefully he'll start feeling a bit better. Mm. So he decides to become... What job do you think he goes for? It's going to be random, isn't it? Um, I don't know. A shoemaker. Uh, that would have been good. No, he doesn't go random. He sticks with what he knows. He's going to be a mine doctor. Okay. He would tour the world... And he would be hired to pick up ailing minds and put them back on their feet. And then he'd go oh, on to the next one. Like uh, Gordon Ramsay's, uh, where he rescues restaurants. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly like that. Basically, he would be paid an utter fortune to walk into a business and tell them who to fire. Yeah. And then he'd walk out again. Yeah, it's like Herbert Hoover's Mine Nightmares. Yes, that's what he started up. Nice. Uh, <laughs> and he was... Apparently just as likeable. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, for years, uh, he was, again, all over the world. He worked on tin mines in Cornwall in England. Oh, wow. uh, he worked on gold mines, uh, Klondike gold mines. One mine that does particularly well, because obviously he's not just repairing mines, he's also getting shares in mines and just putting fingers in various pies. Uh, and one mine that does particularly well is one in Burma that he sets up. This does phenomenally well. He is now very rich. Millionaire four times over. Uh, 
Uh, however, he was soon getting a bit of a reputation. Hoover was the best at what he did. Everyone recognised that in the industry. He was almost always successful at putting minds back on the right track. If you hired Hoover, you probably wouldn't regret it if all you cared about was the mind getting better. <laughs> however... <laughs> If you had to work with him whilst he was doing it, you would start to loathe him. You, you only employed him if you had to, basically. <laughs> he was often rude, he exploded with anger at unpredictable times, as, and had a habit, when something did go wrong, of blaming everyone but himself. He would never admit to a fault. Yeah. The biggest problem, however, was that Hoover was bored. Bored of mines. Well, yeah, I mean, he'd won. He'd won the rat race. He'd, uh, uh, he'd dreamt the dream. Last time he was suffering, he decided he must become a millionaire, so he did. So now what? He needs to change career, then. He starts to think about other opportunities. By 1909, he was starting to develop an interest in politics. Ooh. Now, not, it must be stressed, because he wanted to get into politics himself. <laughs> no, of course not. If there was one thing that Hoover believed in... It was that government would be a lot better if there were fewer people in it. The less government, the better. No, by politics, Hoover started to take an interest in bettering the world in a way that he believed it was best possible, through private volunteer work. He started taking an interest in what was going on in his old home in California, for example. Uh, he would hear stories of students like himself struggling to make ends meet, and he would just send money anonymously through connections, just make sure such and such has a bit of cash, don't say who it's from. Uh, one time, for example, he heard of a professor who was unable to afford a rare, expensive book. So, again, anonymously, he sent it off to the professor. Um, yeah, after a lot of, oh, God, he's an awful person, we actually finally see him... He starts to do stuff with his money, which is quite nice. Philanthro philanthropy. Yeah, I mean, you could argue it's very small scale, and yeah. seriously, maybe you should put your mind to doing something a bit bigger than just giving someone a book. But it's a start, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. It's a start. Uh, maybe the cynic of me uh, has made this next link, because I didn't see it anywhere. Um, but perhaps enough of these anonymous donations were told to the right people uh, because in 1912 he was elected as a trustee at Stanford. Hoover threw himself into the role in typical fashion. He's not one to idly do a job. He's going to storm in and he's going to make things run his way. Uh, and with his resources and his organisation skills, he pushed through a new library for the university, a gymnasium, a hospital... Upon learning that the professor's wages were so low that they could not even afford to, shock horror, get maids, um, <laughs> yeah, he made sure that pay rises for all of the professors was forthcoming. Uh, generally, everyone in the university was very pleased that Hoover was now around organising things and throwing money at stuff. Do you think he's competing? Cause it sounds like he's just trying to make the best university ever to beat, you know, Brown and... We will come back to that. We will. Put a pin in that. Okay. Getting your head around Hoover took me a few attempts. Right. And eventually I landed on it. Because he keeps doing things where you go, oh, okay, that's not quite what I thought he was like. Yeah. Uh, and now he's doing this? Why would he do that? And then eventually something clicked in my head. But we'll talk about that at the end. So anyway, he's there. He's, he's making the university run well. Uh, and he's pleased. Uh, he's still looking for something to do, however. And the Panama Pacific International Expo was due in 1915. Big event. 
Hmm. All very exciting. Hoover had an idea. Wouldn't it be great fun if he could get good old King George V of Britain to pop along? <laughs> I mean, how hard could that be? Quite hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, don't forget, Hoover's very well connected with British politicians by this point. He was based in London for of course, good yeah. few years, uh, and he was filthy rich. So obviously <laughs> he knew the politicians. Uh, so he set off uh, to London to have some talks with some people, including the ex-Prime Minister, Arthur Balfour, uh, the kind of connections he's got now. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, that means that he was in London in 1914. Oh. And it was here that he finally managed to fill that hole that he found inside him. That aimless kind of figuring out, what do I do with my life now? Ah, now there's something he can do. He started organising for American citizens to get on ships back home as the war broke out. They were struggling to get home and book yeah. passage. So he started handing out loans to people and oh. uh, organising where they could go on ships. Uh, he claimed he was authorised to do this by the United States government. Uh, that simply wasn't true. No. Uh, but no one was about to stop him from organising various businessmen into doing something that needed to be done. And soon enough, the groups of businessmen were organising events and paying for travel for people who needed it. Yeah. Again, volunteer work uh, in the private sector is the way forward. Um, eventually, the United States Embassy uh, gave him a, a half-official nod to tell him, yes, carry on, you know what, you're doing a good job. But he very much elbowed his way in there. He was never asked to do it. Yeah. And there you go, he, he did it. The job was done. Uh, most American citizens that wanted to get back home were going back home. So he booked his passage back home himself on the Lusitania. Oh. Don't worry, we're about half a year away. Okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I did exactly that whilst reading yeah. it. It's like, oh dear. It's like, oh, no, 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 it's fine. But anyway, he didn't actually get on the boat. Okay. Which is, in <laughs> he a way... for another year. <laughs> in a way, it would have been such a better story if it yeah. was the voyage that sank, because he would have... He would have dodged death at this point, but uh, no, that's not the same voyage. Uh, yeah, he didn't get on Melissa because he was called to the US Embassy. There was a growing humanitarian crisis in Belgium, he was told. The Germans had taken the country, but they would not use their limited resources to feed the citizens. Mm -hmm. The British, in turn, were refusing to lift the blockade that had been set up. Yeah. So people were going to starve. Now, the British had said, to be fair to them, that uh, if the United States oversaw the food distribution as a neutral party, they'd be willing to lift the blockade, but only under those conditions. Mm. With both sides refusing to budge, and with 70% of their food no longer being imported, millions of Belgians were about to starve to death. Oh dear. Yeah. So, could you sort that out for us, Hoover? If you could, that would be splendid. He did, didn't he? He bloody sorted it. Well, before we get into that, why, <laughs> why Hoover? Why was he picked? Uh, wealth. Yep. Um, he also spent his time proving he likes to help people. He knew this was coming up, didn't he? he that, his, him sending people back was him proving he could do that kind of thing. Yeah, you get the impression he was making sure he was in the right place at the right time. Yeah, just in case something came up. Yeah. On the off chance. He's investing in himself. He's investing in his own name, isn't he? 
Yeah, he, he's got the connections. He's got the wealth, like you say. He's in the right place at the right time. He knows the British government really well. He knows governments from all over the world because he does business with them all the time. He was the perfect man for the job, according to many. Certainly, including Hoover himself. <laughs> because he was now the chair of the Commission for the Relief of Belgium. Or Relief in Belgium, sorry. Uh, that was the CRB, as it was known. Hoover was told that Belgium had approximately two weeks maximum of food reserves before people start dying. So he needed to have something set up by them. He would have to raise at least a million dollars, buy tens of thousands of tons of food from all around the globe, organise them into specially marked ships, and then plan the routes through the Netherlands, through one torn Europe, to deliver yeah. to the starving Belgians. You've got two weeks off you go. He bloody does it, doesn't he? Well, he left the meeting, immediately, realising with time differences that the uh, Chicago Stock Exchange was still open, uh, put a call through and put in some orders for foodstuffs. Not, not just from America, all over the world, in fact. Very rapidly, he ordered five times the amount that he could afford to pay for, just trusting wow. that he would be able to raise the extra money. How hard can it be to raise money? He's done it all his life. <laughs> uh, and he was right, he did, he raised the money. So that was fine. Yeah. Uh, the CRB, although officially not recognised by any country, because it's tricky diplomatically, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. America were neutral, which is always something I forget when I look at World War One. It's like they genuinely yeah. were neutral at the start. They don't really want to be getting involved. They're, they're yeah. willing for someone to be doing it unofficially on America's behalf, and that was good enough for Britain and other countries. So, yeah, not officially recognised was the CRB, but it was soon operating to some extent all across the globe, including in war-torn Europe, where it commandeered railways, 500 canal boats, numerous factories. In fact, one member of the British Foreign Office described the CRB as, and I quote, a piratical state organised for benevolence. They've gone rogue, but for good. Uh, <laughs> now, the only way to actually do this, of course, is to get tacit approval from all the countries involved. Therefore, Hoover yeah. was in the unique position in the world where he was pretty much the only private citizen in the world negotiating with leading politicians from the British, German, French, Belgium, Dutch governments, etc., etc. Uh, wow. In fact, he was successful enough with the Germans to get an unconditional passport through newly occupied lands. Could just travel wow. through there. Not all in Germany were pleased that this American was sorting out the humanitarian crisis while European leaders waged war. Uh, for example, the new governor of Belgium did not like Hoover one bit, felt he was muscling mm. in on the land he was now occupying. He openly opposed Hoover's strategy to feed the Belgians. Hoover simply went over his head and went directly to Berlin and got support. Mm. Nice. So there are German governors being told, no, listen to Hoover. Yeah. Eventually, however, of course, as is always the case with Hoover, uh, lots of people start to get very fed up with him. Uh, not just German governors. There were many British leaders who were soon sick to the back teeth of him. Mm. The current First Lord of the Admiralty, for example, a certain Winston Churchill, was very angered at the notion of the blockade being weakened in any way, and he called Hoover, and I quote, a son of a bitch. <laughs> uh, Incidentally, this was yet again one of those moments where I went, oh, wow, look how modern we're getting now. It's like, oh, look, Churchill's yeah. popped up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're yeah. really starting to get modern. And it's not just European leaders who Hoover was annoying. 
pretty much any US politician in Europe soon grew to despise the turmoil that Hoover was creating. The US ambassador in Belgium wrote that Hoover was, and I quote, always trying to force blackmail to frighten people into doing things his way. What a bully! And by all accounts, Hoover was exactly that. He was a bully. He hated anyone disagreeing with him. His word had to be final, and he had no time for anyone else's ideas. Because of this, what he did was very streamlined. Things got done incredibly quickly and efficiently, and it got done successfully. See, that should be on the T-shirt when you you want an autocracy. It's like, see, it streamlines, it's efficient. Yeah, uh, he may have been disliked by almost all politicians in Europe from all sides of the war... Uh, both sides and the neutral sides, uh, but <laughs> he was recognised as a necessity. And of course, to the millions of families who were not starving to death because of him, he was justifiably a hero. Oh, yeah, yeah, OK, you wouldn't want to work for him, but he puts food on the hey. table, so there you go. Uh, he was critiqued by those he worked with him for being cold-hearted. In fact, I quote, From his words and his manner, he seemed to regard human beings as so many numbers. Not once did he show the slightest feeling. Get the impression that he was told to do the job and he was going to do the job well, damn it. it but he didn't yeah. really care about the people involved. Uh, They're just spreadsheets. Yeah, them. exactly. Uh, he would have loved, he would have loved an Excel spreadsheet. You know he would have done. Oh, I would have done, yeah. He's uh, born in the wrong area. But again, to reiterate the point I just made, to the people who now had food in their bellies, they did not care if the man in charge knew their names or not, or saw them as a number or not. They were fed, so therefore they were happy. At the peak of the operation, Hoover was feeding nine million Belgians and French people a day. Wow. He was hailed as the great humanitarian of the age. And if there's one thing that Hoover himself got out of the war, it was the firm belief that private and volunteer work could overcome literally anything whatsoever and could do far better than any government could. Well, he's proving it. Yeah, he's proving it right now. As historian Lechtenberg points out, uh, this, however, is a distortion of history. He might have proved it in his eyes, and he proved it to many people who wanted to believe it. Right. But the CRB may have been set up as a private endeavour to circumvent the bureaucracies of government, but it was unofficially backed by the governments. That's why it was created. And more importantly, yeah, yeah. it was actually financed by them. $12 million a month was needed to keep the operation running. $10 million wow. a month came from the British and French governments until the United States entered the war in 1917, and then almost all of the $12 million came from the United States government. So pretty much all the money actually was the government's money being yeah. given to a private volunteer enterprise to just streamline things. In Hoover's mind, however... It was his volunteering to lead the CRB that meant that the funds were raised. It didn't matter where the funds came from, they were only there due to his private endeavour. Now, this might mm. not seem hugely important right now. It might seem like I'm nitpicking slightly, uh, but it's important to know this mindset of his to make sense of next episode, when another global right. crisis hits. Ah, yes. 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 Anyway, back to what Hoover's actually doing. Because the United States, as I just mentioned, entered the war in 1917. Uh, Hoover got to the point where he no longer felt like he was needed in Europe. His work had made his name internationally well-known. The CRB was working efficiently. So he started to think about what he wanted to do next. Now, bearing in mind everything I just said about him thinking that the government could and should not take a lead in aiding citizens, he decided that he should be given a cabinet job by Wilson, the president. <laughs> now, this might sound strange, 
and it took me a while, like I said earlier, to get a handle on Hoover whilst doing the research. Because, like I say, he keeps doing things that seem contradictory to, to the image you might have of him. This is one of those yeah. times. However, I think, like I say, I've got, I've got the grasp on him. I'm not going to explain it just yet, but just keep, keep thinking. What's okay. he about? Right. Okay. Um, I don't want to influence your thoughts. But just know, after establishing it very firmly in his head that private endeavours are definitely the way forward, he starts looking for a top government job back in the United States. Now, to be fair, this wasn't a one-way street. Uh, Wilson's government recognised the potential of having Hoover work for them uh, to become the so-called food czar for the United States yeah. if they entered the war. Uh, Hoover let it be known that he would do the job, uh, but only if he had full control. Mm. He would not be restrained by the politics. So in May 1917, Wilson announced that the newly created food administrator position would be filled by Hoover. <laughs> Hoover, however, did not wait for Congress to actually create the position yeah. legally. I mean, Wilson couldn't just create this out of thin air. It had to go through Congress. Uh, but Hoover didn't care. He headed back to yeah. America, he set up an office, and he recruited staff. <laughs> the red yeah. tape would sort itself out. He's got a job to do. It was organised that his funding to begin with would actually come from the President Discretionary Fund. So he didn't even have to wait for Congress for funds. So he didn't have to dip into his own pocket. He just got given cash yeah. to go and set up, even though it wasn't technically a job yet. Would it be still seen as like a private enterprise until it's... Well, no, because he is officially employed by the government. Oh, but yeah. you can see in his head how he'd be thinking, oh, I'm yeah. doing a favour for the government, yeah. but just let me get on with it. Yeah. He did refuse to be paid for it. Really? Yeah, so in, you can definitely see it's like it's a volunteer job that he's doing. He's technically employed by the government, but he's not taking any wages. Yeah. So, yeah, it does it does fit with his mindset. Hoover's job was, like his last one, both incredibly simple but insanely complex at the same time. He had to make sure that the United States was making enough food to feed themselves and the soldiers in Europe without damaging the United States economy. Mm. All this whilst the world was going through a food crisis and the economy was tanking. Yeah. Simple. Yeah. Busy. Now Hoover, despising governmental intervention, decided against rationing. He wasn't going to support the government telling everyone what to eat. Instead, he would rely on a volunteer force made up of no less than half of all America. Children. <laughs> no, not children. Uh, he was going to get the women of the ah. country on his side, and they would do the work. Like through suggestive advertising, that kind of thing. Oh yes, a huge, huge propaganda drive was created. Uh, half a million housewives were recruited to go door to door to spread the word. Patriotic women did not waste food. Do you want to support your husband? Then cook him sensible meals. No meat on Tuesdays, no wheat on Wednesdays, those kind of messages. Yeah. So you, you just have groups of women knocking on your door uh, trying to essentially shame you into doing the right thing uh, in fact this worked so effectively the word hooverize came to mean to cut back in the common lexicon of the time nice. children were taught songs at school about the importance of food uh, clergymen were recorded preaching the merits of food conservation uh, posters obviously posters went up everywhere don't help the hun at mealtime is an example of one of them. You can imagine, though, if you're living in, like, Wyoming, it's like, but we're nowhere near Germany. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So how, how do you instill that sense of uh, a need mm. that actually we do need to do something? And, and this was what Hoover was pushing for. Mm. Uh, he established local branches of the administration throughout the country to be ran by volunteers. Yeah. 
rather than having everything run from Washington, yeah. uh, let's make small little hubs of volunteer workers. Mm. Uh, this made it fully democratic in his eyes. He was very pleased with the idea. Uh, the common man without the government's help was sorting out the food crisis. Obviously, however, uh, real life doesn't quite work like that. No. If you give out volunteer jobs, then that just means that the rich people throughout the country would be the only ones who could actually afford to spend their days doing it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So a rural area full of farmers, for example, the only person who would be able to volunteer to run the department of how the food would be distributed would be the rich banker who happened to be nearby. Yeah. Now, this in itself didn't cause a problem. The rich banker who happened to live nearby was able to do the job perfectly well. But again, it does highlight that Hoover did not necessarily see the world as it was. He saw himself leading a government department giving jobs to those rich enough to be able to not be paid yeah. as an example of the common man helping themselves. Yeah. And it's just not quite how it was. Now, meanwhile, Hoover, as per usual, was going into overdrive to achieve what needed to be done. Once more, his ideas were final and swiftly enacted. Now, this was everything from large-scale things on distribution to the whole country to dictating how much non-wheat flour bakers could use or whether a restaurant could keep sugar on the tables. Uh, wow. it, yeah, we, we go into micromanaging here. It's nanny state, though. Uh, again, yeah, you've got that contradiction. Uh, <laughs> Hoover despising a big government and yet when he's in there oh wow is he big government but he's, he's organising, he likes to organise again we'll get into that in a bit <laughs> uh, also in typical fashion Hoover saw the law as more of a guideline really <laughs> uh, the Senate had made it very clear that his department could not buy or sell sugar that was just one thing he could not do but Hoover did so anyway in order to hold sugar prices down when he thought it would help the country out so he just ignored laws if he didn't like them. <laughs> Fair enough. He fined retailers who were being, and I quote, unreasonable, despite having no authority whatsoever to hand out fines. Uh, he also threatened millers that if they did not sell at the price that the government told them to, he would seize the mills. The mills must make, and I quote, victory bread or close, was the message that he gave them. Well, it's almost anti-capitalist, is no. Well, again, in, in way, again, we're talking the huge contradictions of Hoover. Yeah. He, he's Robert Baron mine owner, and now he's threatening to nationalise the mills. Yeah. yeah. This was yet another action that I found really weird, and it took me a while to get my head around it. I'm hoping it will click with you like it did with me at some point, because then it suddenly all becomes clear. Well, I've got uh, a thought in my head, but I'll leave it uh, to well, the we'll end. Well, we'll save it to the end, uh, yeah. and then we'll, we'll discuss. Anyway, just like in Europe, uh, he made far more enemies than he made friends. Politicians in both parties grew very weary of Hoover's methods. He would lie, bully, and force his plans through with very little regard to what other departments were doing. And also, just like in Europe, he was incredibly successful. He got stuff done. By this time, it had become very clear in Europe just how much Hoover had achieved. So he starts getting thousands upon thousands of letters from people in Europe thanking him for, for everything he had done. Uh, in the United States, it was becoming clear that the fears over a food crisis was not going to materialise. There was no food riots. And in fact, $1.4 billion of food had been exported to Europe. I mean, he'd just done very well. Wow, yeah. it, it's impossible to argue anything other than the fact that he was successful. Very successful. 
Uh, Hoover gave his credit to his army volunteers. I'll quote him, There is no power in autocracy equal to the voluntary efforts of the people. Although he did let the mask slip one time when he told a congressional committee that the reason why he succeeded was that democracy had been willing to, and I quote, yield to dictatorship, which he said in a committee. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, then the war ends. Uh, Hoover wanted to keep the Food Administration going. I mean, it was his department. He'd created it from nothing. Of course he wanted to keep it going. Congress were less keen. (laughs) Hmm. In fact, it was decided by Congress that perhaps Hoover should, uh, I don't know, uh, go somewhere else. Uh, Back back to Europe. Yes, Europe. There's still starving people over there, Herbert. Why why don't you go back to Europe and sort sort the mess out over there? He just shouted, dictator, and left the room. (laughs) Well, again, we see a similar story. There were an estimated 400 million people facing food shortages in Mm. Central and Eastern Europe at this time. So Hoover was put in charge of the renamed Food Administration, the American Relief Administration, with a remit of providing food for all those in trouble. Hoover was able to put all the United States sudden surplus of food to good use. Obviously, the United States had been producing a surplus for quite a while now, and it was no longer needed. You can't put the brakes on that immediately. Aha, it's fine, let's ship it all off to Europe and I'll organise feeding the starving people over there. So, he sends the food halfway across the world and he goes along with it. He spends half a year uh, in Europe, uh, generally annoying the hell out of people and feeding people, uh, depending on who they were. Uh, He, at times, withheld food from entire countries until they sorted themselves out. You get some historians suggesting that actually this stabilised Europe faster than would have been possible because any radical governments that started to spring up, left or right wing, were basically Mm. told not now, otherwise Hoover won't give us the food. (laughs) Now, Wilson, of course, still president, he's in Paris discussing the peace terms, uh, and Hoover uh, made some suggestions. He advised the president that if Europe did not support wholly the 14-point peace plan, they should leave Europe, and I quote, lock, stock and barrel. Now, after a whirlwind five months of organisation across the continent, he boarded a ship for home, announcing that he hoped he would never see the continent again. (laughs) The whiny little... Yeah, again, he's just... He's there working his hardest to save the starving people of Europe. Yeah. He can't stand the place. No. (laughs) No. (laughs) Which does feed into that idea that he saw it as a job and he was going to do the job well. Yeah. I I guess he's got the impression of, you know, going from the new world back to the old world and seeing it almost like a third world country. (laughs) They're there just arguing everything's horrible. It's He wants to go back to America, understandably. Mm. On the political topic of the day... Hoover announced that he fully supported the League of Nations. <laughs> Yet again, what? what? <laughs> Nothing he's done so far indicates this. Uh, it surprised some. Uh, Hoover did not seem the type to allow anything to add regulation to America's law and economy. But that's what he's been doing, though. Not not to the US, but he's been imposing it in his own <laughs> brutalistic way to ah, other yeah. countries. You see, now you're, you're starting to get to the same conclusion I did, I think. Hoover, in typical fashion, uh, didn't support the League of Nations due to any political, philosophical or moral reasons, like Wilson did. Hoover just realised that the quicker that the League was formed, the quicker Europe would be able to get back to work, and therefore things would tick along much better. As ever, it's all about efficiency. Yeah. How do we get the job done as quickly as possible? 
and as efficiently as possible. Sod the human impact. And then Hoover suddenly realised that he had nothing to do again. The war's over. The war had given him purpose. It had made him one of the most famous men in the world. He very justifiably was held up as a hero mm. to millions of people. It's um, really weird because I've always been interested in World War One, particularly, and, and the aftermath as well. Yeah. But I've never heard of Herbert Huber. No, I'm guessing, and American listeners, please let us know, uh, I'm guessing this is us suffering from European bias. Yeah. I'm guessing if you're America, you're very aware that Hoover was very involved uh, in things post-World War One. But no, this is all new to me. Mm. Like, completely new. I knew yeah. about Wilson's involvement, but I had no idea mm. Hoover was doing this. Nope. But still, he's got nothing to do now. Um, in fact, he says at this time, I don't want to just be a rich man. So he goes back to that idea of, oh, well, what do I do with my life? Uh, he toyed with the idea of creating a mining school. Then he toyed with the idea of becoming a newspaper publisher. But mm, nothing really takes his fancy. And he was floundering around for ideas when the next election comes up. His name was actually being bandied around as a candidate for president. Not just by Democrats, because remember he'd worked in Wilson's Democratic government, but yeah. Republicans as well. Ooh, now, Hoover had made enemies in both parties, uh, <laughs> but course. a politician loves nothing more than public support, and the public loved Hoover. They viewed him as a hero. The party that could get Hoover on side, well, I mean, they could do things with that, couldn't they? Oh, yeah. Also, progressives in both parties really liked some of the things that Hoover had been saying recently, including agreeing with a hike in taxes on the rich, and that industry must be humanised and not regarded merely as a cost of production. Hoover suddenly starts saying some very progressive things, siding with workers' rights. Yeah, yeah, yeah again. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. Bear in He's... mind that some people change. Not everyone, and lots of people have very similar views all their life, but no. years have gone by since he was overseeing the mines in Australia. Decades have passed by this point. There is a very good chance that he has fundamentally changed his opinions slowly over time, but that doesn't come through in the history books. It no. just seems quite sudden, especially when you're condensing it down into an episode like this. He has not changed at all. No? <laughs> no, he has not, not changed so? at all. No, he... He does what he needs to to get what he wants, to control a situation. Oh, you see, that's not quite where I am with him, but again, at that's the end. That's the vibe I'm getting. We'll discuss at the end. Yeah. But yeah, uh, Hoover wasn't interested in politics, however. He never had been. He'd done very well during the war, uh, but he realised that the war had made his experience atypical. I mean, yeah. he knew enough about politics to realise that he wouldn't be able to just set up his own department and run it however he liked with no oversight, which is essentially what had happened before. However, he did like the fact that there was a large movement of people talking about him becoming the president. It's always nice for a bit of an ego boost. Oh, yeah, of course. Now, his interest in that was taken as interest in general, and both parties courted him hard. Republicans thought Hoover was a natural Republican. After all, Hoover had grown up a Republican. A Republican area, surrounded by Republicans. He supported Theodore Roosevelt's Progressive Party. Yeah. He had held his nose and worked with the Democrats, uh, but he'd not enjoyed it. He was a Republican at heart. The Democrats, however, had a different view. Hoover was a Democrat. He had, after all, 
just worked very closely with the Democratic president in the Democratic cabinet. Of course he's a Democrat. However, a large number of Democrats, particularly those who had worked with him, were less keen on getting him on board. (laughs) Uh, Wilson himself, in fact, said, I have a feeling that he would rather see a good cause fail than succeed if he was not at the head of it. Mm. Still, as Hoover warmed to the idea of perhaps getting into politics, as more and more people were convincing him it was a good idea, one thing became very clear. The Republicans were going to win the next election. Now, Hoover's not about to hitch his horse to a losing wagon. (laughs) So in March 1920, after lots of public speculation, he announced that he was indeed a Republican. Sort of. (laughs) In fact, I'll I'll quote uh, what he stated. Brilliant. If the Republican Party, with the independent element of which I am naturally affiliated, adopts a forward-looking liberal constructive platform on the treaty and on our economic issues, and if the party proposes sound business administration of the country, and is neither reactionary nor radical in its approach, and is also backed by men who undoubtedly assure the consummation of these policies and measures, I will of course give it all my support." Caveat after caveat after caveat. Yes. As uh, one reporter in the New York Times put it, and I'll quote, Mr. Hoover tells the Republican Party he would like to belong to it if it was the kind of party with which he would like to belong, and that if he belongs to it, he would have no objection leading it. Which is a brilliant summing up. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The GOP, after this, half-heartedly accepted their new member. (laughs) That's amazing. Uh, I'll I'll quote one leading member. Hoover gives most of us goose flesh. Still, as we've seen, uh, Harding won the next election and the Republicans were back in power. Harding offered Hoover the Secretary of Commerce job, described Mm. by his predecessor as, and I quote, putting the fish to bed and turning on the lights around the coast. It was not a big job. It was a, oh, go and have this and just put your feet up kind of job. Maybe maybe you can do something in the future, or maybe this is a punishment, but it, it's not a rising star yeah. job. So you're right, he'd be good as like a foreign secretary, sure. Well, it might not have been seen as a big job, the Secretary of Commerce. However, Hoover saw it as a huge opportunity. He would be the Secretary of Commerce. <laughs> but he would be what he thought the Secretary of Commerce should be, not what it was right now. And that meant that any bureaus from any other department that he considered to be part of commerce should and would be given to him. Wow. That meant business, agriculture, labour, finance, foreign affairs. In other words, Hoover made it very clear he was going to do things his way. And here we get yet another contradiction of Hoover. Like, I've made it clear his views on government. He believed less governmental intervention, the better. Yeah. Small government, no regulations, etc. But, as we've seen with other areas, it turns out that this wasn't born from any philosophical or political beliefs. This wasn't some overarching uh, belief that he held about government. It wasn't that Hoover necessarily believed that governments should not interfere with people. It was more that governments should not interfere with him. If he was the government, and it made things easier to get done, then he was more than happy to build up the government. Now, this went against everything in Harding's government. If you remember the last two presidents we've covered, 
the government is being slimmed down as much as possible. The birth of the modern Republican Party is happening. Small government, less bureaucracy. Hoover, meanwhile, was in that government building up his own personal empire. He'd set up several brand new bureaus, one of aeronautics, one of radios, one of housing, one of foreign and domestic commerce, which was an excuse for him to send agents to cities all across the globe to conduct censuses of uh, market behaviour. In other words, he wanted a bit of a foreign office kind of yeah. thing going yeah, yeah. on, so he just made up a, a bureau for it. Cool, that. Good. But when he wasn't creating bureaus, he was simply taking them off other departments. Uh, including mines from the Department of the Interior. So he's now in charge of all the mines. I guess you could class it under commerce, though, because it's... Well, yeah, exactly. Um, Sellable stuff. Custom statistics from Mellon's Treasury. Oh, that's an exciting department. Better have wild (laughs) Christmas parties. Well, uh, as, as you can imagine, yeah, the government's slimming down and everyone's trying to, to get rid of their bureaus, but no one likes to give up power. And no. very quickly, Hoover had burnt any bridges that he perhaps had in Harding's government. He soon became known as Secretary of Commerce and Undersecretary of all other departments. <laughs> he opposed Harding, and then after Harding's death, because we've reached the point when Harding suddenly dies, he also opposes Coolidge's interventions in Central and South America. Uh, Businesses, according to Hoover, should be more responsible. They should not take risks if it meant that if they failed that risk, armed intervention would be needed. Mm. So there's a very sensible view from Hoover there. Yeah. But goes completely against what Harding and Coolidge believed. In fact, it continues uh, because Hoover believed that the cycles of boom and bust were actually awful. He argued that the current government should be doing more to cushion the blow of the inevitable crash. It's going to happen at some point, surely. No, it's uh, not. Being Let me very see. optimistic, but uh, yeah, whenever it happens, we should probably put something aside for it. It won't happen. Look, look how much money I was raking in. Well, opinions like these did not make him popular with most leaders in the GOP at the time. And then the Great Flood of 1927 happened. Oh, yeah. The one that uh, Calvin uh, did nothing with. <laughs> yes, exactly. As covered in Coolidge's episode, the president was not one for the federal government getting involved. <laughs> but as we know from Hoover, this is, this is his bread and butter. He sprang into mm. action. Hoover went into overdrive to sort the problem out. Hundreds of people were dead. Hundreds of thousands of people were displaced. Food shortages were rife. Countless damage to property. Uh, and all this just seemed easy to Hoover. I mean, he dealt with a lot worse. So, let's get this sorted, he said, slapping his hands together. Uh, He toured the area, he organised, he went from town to town uh, and told them to expect refugees within the hour. You need to prepare for them. They're not coming in days and weeks, you need tents up, you need hospitals, you need food ready for them, you need water (laughs) ready for them. You've got five minutes. Yeah, you've you've got five minutes, I'm off to the next town to tell them the same. Get yourself sorted. He started a fundraising campaign that raised $17 million almost immediately. He created 150 tent cities. As a vast proportion of those impacted came from black communities, Hoover also asked the Red Cross to employ more black people and also make sure that these rumours that were spreading of black people being restrained against their will in these camps uh, had no truth to them. All in all, we see Hoover doing an amazingly good job. Once more, his organisational skills are fantastic. 
He's getting it done. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, we then see the negative side of Hoover pop up once more. Uh, when a representative working for the NAACP, a man named Morton, reported back that actually it's been looked into and there were black people who were being forced at gunpoint to work at repairing the levees, a very dangerous job. Yeah. And at least a few had been murdered by soldiers forcing them to do the work. Hoover became very angry. He forced Morton to rewrite the report. He would not oh. allow anything to tarnish the good news story of countless volunteers coming together to repair the damage of the flood. This, this was a success story. He, he wasn't going to let it be ruined by a few bad apples. Yeah. So once again, he proved himself to have no peer when it came to large-scale organisation, and his work during the flood propelled him as the forerunner to the next Republican convention. Hmm. Coolidge had announced that he would be stepping down, or at least that he wouldn't run again, uh, and there was only one man seen who could replace him. Most in the party did not like him, but they no. could all see that they would win with him, and he was very popular in the country. So Hoover was nominated in the very first round. It's unusual. Unusual, yeah. Campaigning began. Hoover was very optimistic. I'll quote him, We shall soon, with the help of God, be in sight of the day when poverty will be banished from this nation, he claimed. <laughs> he had to say it quite loudly because the irony gong was just, just being bashed away in the background. Yeah. But he sort of... Just getting cracked with the... <laughs> yeah, but he, but he shouted very loudly. And also, to be fair to him, unlike almost all politicians, I'm fairly sure he probably believed what he was saying. He probably genuinely believed he would be able to wipe out poverty rather than just saying it because it sounds good. It was a very straightforward campaign. The economy was still doing well at this point. Coolidge had been popular enough in his own way, as we covered, uh, and Hoover was seen as an improvement on this. So the election came, and it was a landslide once more. He received 21.4 million votes against the Democrats' 15 million votes. Wow. The Electoral College, 444 seats to 87. Whoa! Oh, yes. We're talking full landslide here. Is that the biggest gap we've seen? Uh, no. Washington got all. Oh. Uh, but it's, it was slightly different count. back then. Yes. In, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, it's off the top of my head, I think this is the biggest landslide we've seen for the time modern American politics. Yeah, yeah. If not everyone liked the new president-elect, practically the entire country agreed that he would be a capable one, even if you didn't agree with him or personally like him. Mm. Uh, Hoover did have one fear, however. I'll quote, What I fear is the exaggerated idea that people have conceived of me. They have the conviction that I'm some sort of superman, that no problem is beyond my capacity. However, if some unprecedented calamity should come across the nation, I would be sacrificed to unreasoning disappointment of a people who expect too much. That doesn't bode well for the future. And that's where we'll leave it. Mm. So there you go. What do you think of Hoover? Do you know what? I've got... Normally, I write notes on all the presidents. This time, I've written key words of what... Yeah. Of what I thought of his personality. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll go through my, my thought process, if that's okay. If we've got time to do so. Yes, yes, we Very have. Very quickly. I'll, I'll just list the words I said. My first one I wrote was, ulterior motives is the first one I had. So he did yeah. everything with something else in mind, a goal. Opportunist, ambitious, um, building his own stock for the future. A puppet master, he just wanted to control, and I put control in big capital letters. Yeah, okay. Then I went down to maybe just, he just wants impact. He wants his life to be meaningful. 
Yeah. Um, then I thought, well, maybe he's always wanted to be president. Like that's always actually been his goal. But it's, it's you know, Secret he's, he's done things to, yeah, to okay. you know, he's built his stock over time. Then I thought maybe he's just always, he was just always bored. He just wanted, always wanted to challenge and push himself. But then I thought, has he just always chosen his own narrative for everything? That was my last thought. Like he, because he said like, you know, people think this of me, but maybe that's not him. And now he's gonna be president. He's in the the limelight, and he yeah. won't be able to hide as easily. That was my thought process throughout the whole thing. I I have really enjoyed researching Hoover. The the most I have enjoyed researching a president for a long time. I mean, Roosevelt's story is obviously brilliant, and uh, yeah. Coolidge just had a weird personality, so that made that <laughs> yeah. interesting. Um, but Hoover, I just wasn't expecting this. No, I, I, I he, Hoover's one of those presidents that I knew practically nothing about before I started no. looking into it. We've all heard the name. Yeah. Um, yep. We've all pushed one around the house. Uh, <laughs> yep. But then then I started reading. Not only has he got a fascinating life, you spend all your time trying to figure out who, who the hell is this man? Mm. Why does he keep doing these things that I don't expect him to do? What, what's he thinking? And because of that, it made it interesting. It made it a puzzle that I wanted to solve. And I was taking a break from my research uh, a couple of days ago making myself some food in the kitchen, and it suddenly clicked into place. The egg into the omelette. <laughs> I, I, it suddenly, it was like, oh, I understand him. It explains everything he did. Do you want to know my theory? Yeah, go on. Hoover is a competent Trump. A populist? He's a populist. He has no big philosophy on politics. He wants yeah. to be seen as doing well, but he doesn't actually care about what he's doing. He just wants to be seen as doing well. However, the difference is he's incredibly good at organisation. He is very competent at what he does. So when he puts his mind to stuff, he achieves it incredibly well. So everyone around him who finds it, find him insufferable pretty much everyone hates him who works <laughs> with him or for him yeah uh, but because he's so efficient and he's so good at what he does they put up with it it explains everything he does it explains why he hates the idea of um big government and restrictions it wasn't mm. political for him he just didn't like being told what to do because he wanted to do things efficiently and quickly when he became the government, yeah. he didn't keep that belief because the quickest and easiest way to get something done as the government is to just do it as the government. Yeah, And so he uses that as well. He uses whatever he can to his disposal uh, to get things done. And that's why he's very good at organisation. He doesn't care about following the law, for example, um, <laughs> because that will slow him down. Too so inconvenient. Yeah. yeah. So... He will do anything he needs to to get the job done. And it works. And because of that, he has managed to propel himself to the point of being the president. Yeah, that, that's, that's my theory on him. I would have three quarters agreed with you until you, you told me about the point where he changed the report about the, uh, the, the black people not getting treated nicely. Oh, yes, nicely. there is then... The fact that Don't he's a massive racist bad. just sprinkled on top. He's, no. a, he's a nasty well, person. Well, the fact the fact he hid the bad stuff and said, like, only show the good stuff. Oh, Don't yeah. take this. But, but the, that's the image. That's that kind of... Oh, no, yeah, no, I suppose so. See, see, see the, 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 the shine. But again, this, this is why finale. I'm saying he's a competent Trump. 
I, I'd go with that. I, I think that's yeah. uh, very yeah, he, he wants yeah. everyone to see him as incredibly good at what he does, hmm. and he doesn't care how he does it. Um, yeah, so he and will. He is good at what he does. <laughs> yeah, and that, that that's where the the difference lies, as we will see when yeah. we get to Trump's episode. Uh, he has had a far less successful career uh, than Hoover has, but. If I get the feeling, if if Trump knew history, then I am guessing he would really revere Hoover. I think Hoover would be someone that Trump would be amazed by, yeah. because that's the kind of president he wants to be. He wants to be someone who goes in. He's not a politician. He's going to push everyone to one side. Yeah. He's just going to get the job done. Um, so there we go. That is Hoover. And to be honest, it's looking pretty good, because Hoover can get the job done. And I would yeah. argue if, I don't know, America was about to hit one of the worst crises it ever has in its history, mm. you could do a lot worse than having Hoover in charge. It's true. Let's see how he does, shall we? Oh, that's not boding well. <laughs> uh, and also, listeners, please don't message us saying if he does good or bad, because I do see the messages and I don't want to know. Oh, oh do, you, do you not know how it goes? No. Do you not? Oh, interesting. No, I'm imagining not well, I'll be honest. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, there we go. Thank you uh, very much for listening. Um, between now and next episode, uh, if you're in America, uh, mm. I don't know if you've heard, uh, there's an election coming up that's linked to what oh, we really? do. Um, yes, a presidential oh. election. Uh, oh. So, uh, good luck. Uh, with with everything in the election, yep. For for whoever you're voting, go and vote. Mm. Whether you just you know, don't be an idiot. And go, I'm not going to just make a difference. It... Yeah, go go yeah. vote, please, yeah. please do. Um, I mean, in theory, it shouldn't make a difference to us in this country, but it does. <laughs> it impacts the entire world. So yes. <laughs> yes, it does. So go go vote. Yeah. Uh, and I think I think what we'll do is we will record part two of Hoover. On we were due Thursday to... of that week. Yeah, so we, we well, yeah, we were due to record it on the fourth, so we record on the fifth. Yeah, so let's, that might let's be more of an idea of uh, just so. I mean, more of an idea. The way things are this year, it's probably not going to be cut and dry even by that point. But no. we we have an idea, more of an idea. Yeah. So yeah, so uh, we'll see. Should be fun. Should be yeah. interesting. I've got. Um, I made a deal with Rob. If uh, well, if if you know, we, I, I've said that. What I think would happen if I'm wrong, I'm going to send Rob a bottle of whiskey via Amazon. Excellent. Give Jeff Bezos some more money. Nice bottle of Ardbeg as well. I'm going to make it worth your while. Do, do, do you want to say what you think is going to happen? I, I'm i happy to. I, I think somehow Trump will continue being president. That's what I think will happen. Okay. And you, you're I'm only that saying that there. as well because oh, I'm not going to say why. I just, I'm going to say what I think. You think he, he takes it. Okay. I think he may. I'm going to say the opposite. I'm going to say it was unlikely he was going to win last time. That doesn't mean impossible. And he won. It was still unlikely that he was going to win. And I'm going to yeah. say it's even less likely he'll win this time. Okay. So it could happen. But mm. if I were to put a bet on it, uh, I would say that he's not going to. And if I lose, I'll send a bottle of whiskey your way. Oh, sounds good. Yeah, sounds good. let's okay. do this. Uh, don't forget to download us on Podbean and iTunes um, and you know, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Yeah. Until next time. Good, <laughs> good luck. Good luck. Yes, good luck. Goodbye. Goodbye.
This message comes to you from the Food Administration. Things have never been worse for the USA. It is up to you to save the nation. Ah, Mr. Smith. Yes? You're throwing away that chicken carcass. Why? It's, it's finished with. Are you not patriotic? Eat the bones. What? Eat the bones. Okay. Ow. We will win this victory with the kitchens of America. Ah, Mrs. Clemens. Yes? What do you do with that sandwich? It's moldy. I don't care. Use it to buff your shoes. Okay. Buff, woman, buff! I'm buffing. It's, just, it's come apart. There are crumbs in my socks. The crumbs of victory. Ah, and here's Mr. Rogers from a farm in Iowa. Hi. And I hear you grow wheat. Ah, I grow wheat, victory wheat. What do you think of the people that eat wheat on a Wednesday? Well, you know what they say. As my grandmother said to me, they need to be dragged into the street and executed. Excuse me? Either that or a couple of shots to the back. I, I think, thank you, Mr. Rogers. That's, that's very extreme. For, for victory. Uh, and over here we have uh, uh, Charles Minthorn. Uh, hello. Drinking a lovely glass of milk. Uh, what? No, sorry, it's, it's, gone, it's gone off. It's gone rancid? Yes, I've, I've, I've got to, you know, like recycle it uh, on, on, on the recycle tip. No, man, you must drink. Drink for victory. Drink for American soldiers. But it, it's gone all chewy. Then chew. Chew for victory. Masticate for our soldiers. Okay. I don't like it. Remember, your country needs you. This message was approved by the Food Administration. In my head, that's probably about right. Uh, I don't know. Have to ask my brother. He's down there at the moment. Is he in Perth, though? Oh yeah, yeah. He's in he's in like the city part of Australia. Because because when when a lot of the Australians we met, they they always mocks the people in Perth as they're a bit weird. So. <laughs> really? <laughs> don't don't, don't go to the west coast. Oh, fair enough. I I don't know. I just know that. Australia is a lot bigger than anyone realizes it is, and it's almost Europe, all it? desert. You can fit America in it. You're you're on Europe, as in the United States. Europe, the moon. Australia. Yeah, the moon and Australia are roughly the same size. That's, that's yeah. a little fact for you. Yeah, so many Australian facts of where it could fit. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he's there. He's he's in Australia. Those who worked for. <coughs> Sorry, just going through puberty still.